was not a particularly easy sermon for me to prepare for, and uh, I don't know that I'm terribly prepared. Um, <clears throat> it's been a very, very busy uh, time in my life, just in general, but with work especially, and um, uh, running around trying to take care of a great many things and then kind of collapsing on the back end of it. Um, so as I was preparing, I was thinking about a great many different things that I, I could talk about today. Um, uh, among which I was um, very much considering um, continuing along uh, with Damon's current uh, trend of things that stand in the way of our belief, uh, things that challenge um, our faith and our ability uh, to believe. Um, <clears throat> and uh, that you know, ran a wide gamut that I was looking at as far as um, the commonality of language uh, in religion, you know, generally worldwide, um, which historically up until now has been seen more as uh, proof of God's presence and now is often used as proof against, as uh, the merely uh, a human contrivance. Um, <clears throat> considered um, looking at, you know, in opposition to just the commonality, but also uh, the saturation, if you will, of... Uh, uh, religious uh, cynicism and uh, the fact that we very we have a very hard time believing we mock ourselves and rightly so a lot of times um, and um, but we've seen so many people abuse the truth so badly we've seen um, priests and families and uh, other people that have claimed the name of Christ and um, abused it so woefully so publicly and it um, tends to breed a great deal of, of cynicism that um, often um, makes it difficult for us to believe. Um, and then, as I was working through and considering these things, um, it occurred to me that actually what I'll talk about a bit today is um, how do we forgive and how do we believe and treat those items in, the er in an era of unprecedented exposure. And forgive me, I'm probably going to be a little bit all over the place this morning. Um, like I said, my notes are kind of scattered. But I was reading, uh, reading through various passages, um, and we're going to go through several today um, in Romans and Corinthians uh, and Matthew as well. Um, and considering um, concepts such as the weaker brother. Um, so, if we turn <coughs> to, say, Romans 14. I actually do have that bookmarked. And I'm not going to go over these all in, in great depth um, in this sense, but... Um, Romans 14:13. Uh, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. 
By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Several other passages of uh, the same, same topic. But I got to thinking about it and I was wondering, you know, there's been a lot of history um, for those passages. I've certainly heard them preached many times over and it's why you end up with a lot of uh, churches where um, alcohol ends up being considered sinful, as does dancing, as does any number of other things that um, really in no way are uh, judged as such in, on any grounds. Um, but we um, defer to those who are quote-unquote weaker um, to make those judgments. And yet the understanding that Paul presents even here is that you know, we still have, if you will, the right in Christ um, to enjoy those things that God has given us. We um, are not um, to be shackled in that way. Um, and as I considered that, and I considered, well, as long as you have a certain degree of privacy, you can do that. And then there's Twitter. Um, and all of a sudden, we are beholden to all of the weaker people of the world. And it becomes very, very difficult um, to effectively um, practice our faith to effectively say, this is a freedom that I have been granted um, because everyone who does not understand um, then sees it, judges it, and the cynicism of our society increases. Um, and uh, I'm probably going to just ask a lot of questions as I go through this morning, but I promise to be fairly brief, to be honest. Um, the truth is we've never been... Um, more exposed as a people. Um, the actions that we uh, take are more public. They travel faster to a much, much broader audience. Um, that which might have affected a family or a community now um, ripples out across the entire globe. Um, and people that have no context for us um, often you know, um, have no uh, cultural commonality even necessarily. Um, Yet, because we claim the name of Christ, uh, those things um, are put on, uh, to the seat of judgment. And not only are those mistakes uh, more public than they've ever been, and sometimes, by the way, I hope you'll notice, they're, I'm not even necessarily saying they're mistakes, they're not even necessarily wrong, but they are tremendously public. Um, and they're publicly permanent. Um, I remember um, my great-grandfather, actually, when my dad was uh, writing love letters at one point in his life as a very young man, um, pulled, pulled him aside and said, you know, don't put anything in writing you don't want to see on the front page in the morning. And as true as that was then, um, now as we... Um, look at this and we put everything out there, everything we've 
we ate, when we brushed our teeth, and everything else that uh, for everyone else to look at um, and judge. And there are many benefits, to be sure, but um, those records also don't go away. Um, they become a matter of public record. Um, and as a society, we seem to have developed a very distinct inability to forgive. Uh, the truth is something may fall off our criminal record if we have done something wrong, um, but people go find it on the Internet. And it's, it is, never ceases to amaze me that someone, you know, for instance, that um, is applying for a job at 55 years of age and being denied because of something they did when they were 21. I, that's more than an entire lifetime ago. That was a different person. <laughs> I've done a lot of things since then. Um, but it doesn't matter. Um, as a society, we have reached a point where we find it um, tremendously, tremendously difficult to forgive. Um, and yet, in the midst of that lack of forgiveness um, and the speeches of uh, tolerance and acceptability, um, we also are incredibly, incredibly quick to pass judgment based on hearsay because that's what most of our information now is. <laughs> so somebody posts something out there that says, uh, this person is creepy and was taking pictures of my kids. Um, no proof, just I was bugged by it. And the next thing you know, he's got cops on his front door. He was taking pictures of his own kids, wasn't being creepy at all. But there it is, and the judgment was passed um, no need to collect evidence, no need to um, speak to anyone else, um, simply proceed um, based on what was stated. And as a result of these things, um, our mistakes of the past often tend to blot out all of our accomplishments. Um, you know, when for new parents and things, and I remember growing up, but you know, people used to say it would take you know four, four positives to outweigh a negative, um, and uh, now it seems that that balance is sort of perpetually has a finger on it. Um, one mistake, and we shall never be forgiven. Uh, we will never um, be allowed to uh, consider ourselves or be considered a good person. Um, to uh, forgive ourselves or have others forgive us. And honestly, that's a pretty severely bleak uh, way of looking at things. And very distinctly um, not the way that God looks at things, not the way that God looks at us, and not the way that we ought to look at one another. As I look at our reconsideration and our um, retooling of history in a lot of ways, um, to the point of, you know, anti-forgiveness or unforgiveness in the sense that going backwards, we take people that um, have done many, many good things but because they did uh, something wrong. They are no longer worthy of our praise. Um, for instance, Martin Luther. Personal life? Not all that great. Um, Anti-Semitism? Yep. But he actually, you know, did a tremendous amount of good, and yet now, for the most part, we see only that narrow piece of his life 
that was unfortunate. And I wonder about going back and holding up um, others to the same uh, to the same scrutiny, uh, to the same judgment. Would we judge David under the same guise? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. To be honest, all of them did some pretty awful things. And yet we come down to it and God still loves them. And David, even after having raped a woman, murdered her husband, and uh, done all kinds of other terrible things, is still called a man after God's own heart. And I think that is where our hope truly lies. So when we look at how are we supposed to behave, what are we supposed to do? Um, We can take a look back at Matthew 18. Um where the disciples are trying to figure out exactly that. Peter comes to Christ and says, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times. And Jesus says, I do not say seven times, but seventy times seven. And it's followed by the account of the uh, servant who was forgiven for uh, several years' wages uh, and yet would not forgive a day's debt to himself. And so we come back and we think, okay, well, I've heard that, you know, it's um, deal with my own culpability and responsibility, the log in my own eye. We can also look a little bit earlier in Matthew 18 about you know, how do we how do we handle it when people do wrong us and Um, starting in verse 15 if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone and if he listens you have gained your brother but if he does not take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses and if he refuses then tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector and it's interesting because there's not a total lack of judgment here. Uh, as a matter of fact, when something is wrong, um, the party responsible is called to be confronted. Um, but they're called to be confronted um, lovingly. And they're called to be confronted um, in a way that has the potential for restoration. And so we come to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul um, has a bit of a rant of just sort of almost absolute disbelief. Um, there's a man who is um, sleeping with his mother 
or at least with his father's wife, if not his mom. Um, and they're boasting about it because, you know, they have the freedom to do whatever they want because they can. Uh, and they've been forgiven and all of those things. And, you know, he goes through and lays down the letter of the, not the law, but, you know, lays it out for them and says, you know what? Not okay. Um, cast him out of the church. Uh, until, and the until is really the important part, because the until is what happens in Second Corinthians, because they do what he's asked, what he's asked, and they cast the man out, and then a lot of people would consider that Second Corinthians two is a response to the aftermath, and that Paul coming back and saying, "I didn't mean it to be permanent." I meant for you to forgive. It is not that they have not done something wrong. It's not that they um, have not stumbled or fallen. But the goal is not to simply punish. The goal is to restore. And the goal is to forgive. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg of you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been done for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And I think, from a New Testament standpoint, and from an old, and the reflections thereon, what we see throughout is a consistent striving for restoration. And restoration does, of course, require that we admit when we have done something wrong. And as I was pointing out earlier in our current era, we haven't always done something wrong. But whether we have uh, or we have not, that goal remains the same. And so I think probably our best and brightest thought in the face of these things comes from David in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. 
Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O the righteous, O righteous, and shout for joy for all you upright in heart. And genuinely, within here lies our hope, both in our relationship to God and with each other. For we have been forgiven. And as those who have been forgiven, we are called to forgive others. And it's very definitely not an easy thing. Um, In many ways, especially when we have been deeply hurt, um, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. It, it, um, honestly, the analogy that came most to mind was uh, um, coming home to a, your partner after you've had an affair and they know about it and saying that you're sorry. Um, that's tremendously difficult for both parties. But not letting our cynicism overrule to extend the offer of forgiveness and reconciliation to provide uh, through God and his love the ability to restore that which has been broken. That each of us may say, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In a society in which our wrongs seem to live on perpetually, I think there may be no greater comfort than to know that as far as God is concerned, they have been wiped out completely. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your words. Forgive me for my inadequacies. Um, this morning and conveying them. But Lord, I pray that you would um, show your wisdom and your love in providing the understanding for each of us. Lord, we thank you again for this time together. We ask that you would bless us as we go out from this place. We thank you when we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.